Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 40 of Yogaland. On today's episode, Alexandria Crow is back. I'm so happy that Alex wanted to come back on the show. She was here for episode eight, and we talked about a lot of things. We talked about our favorite comedians, but perhaps most importantly, we talked about why fancy yoga isn't better yoga. Alex is incredibly wise and a clear thinker, and when we were going back and forth to decide on this topic, we had a mind meld. We both wanted to talk about what it means to be a yoga teacher right now. It's a very nuanced topic. Alex deals with it really well, and we talk about several facets. So we talk about who are you when you become a yoga teacher? How do you conduct yourself? How important is it that you are transparent with your students? And how important is it that you understand your own charisma, the power of your own charisma? We also talk about the expectations that students might have of you that you might be completely unaware of before you start teaching. So the authority that they put on you in areas outside of simply teaching yoga can be a little bit overwhelming. So we talk about that. And then finally, we talk about what to look for in a teacher. And we have a frank conversation about the fact that we don't have a code of ethics in the yoga world, that people feel the need to present themselves in a certain light as yoga teachers. And if you're a person going through an inner transformation through the practice or an outer transition in your life, like a divorce or a breakup, or you're going into sobriety, you can be especially vulnerable to your teacher's influence. And quite simply, I wanted to make people aware of, at worst, how that vulnerability could be taken advantage of, and at best, how you could be putting your faith in a teacher who is really just a regular person trying to figure things out, who happens to be good at teaching yoga. In other words, your yoga teacher is not trained as a therapist and as a psychologist. So it's a big topic. According to Yoga Journal and Yoga Alliance, there are now 36 million yoga practitioners in the United States. This is a study conducted in 2016, so really recently. This is a 50% increase since 2012, and we are spending $16 billion a year. So that's a lot of money and a lot of investment, a lot of personal investment, and I'm happy about that. I just want to be part of educating people about how important it is to understand what are reasonable expectations to have of your yoga teacher. And as you go through this wonderful practice that can be so transformational and so useful, how do you continue to have reasonable expectations of the person who's guiding you and how to remember that they are at the end of the day, just a human being? So I hope you enjoy the episode. I wanted to just give a quick heads up about Jason's schedule right now. He is in Oslo, Norway, as I record this, but he's coming back to the States soon and he will be heading to Toronto, Canada for the yoga conference, March 31st through April 2nd. Then he will be in New York City for the Yoga Journal Live Conference, April 21st through 23rd. And then he will be coming back to San Francisco, yay, for another 100-hour training module at Love Story Yoga, May 1st through 13th. There are a few spots left in that one. It's almost sold out. And then Sophia and I will be coming to Seattle, Washington, 
in May, but that one's actually already sold out. Sorry. Anyway, check out his schedule. You can go to jasonyoga.com slash schedule and enjoy the conversation with Alex. So, you know, we both agreed pretty quickly on the topic that we want to talk about. Yeah. And, um, you know, which is on a really macro level, kind of like the role of a yoga teacher, you know, by nature of the fact that yoga is at a minimum, a really transformative process for people. I think there's a lot of psychology that can come into play. So much. So we've talked about the fact that you were raised in a Christian fundamentalist family, but I didn't know that your grandfather was a traveling preacher. So, you know, you said you've like, you've been thinking lately about some of the parallels that you witnessed between his role in that profession and what you see in the yoga world. So I'd love it if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's actually not something that I even correlated until really recently. Recently, um, my grandparents weren't part of my life after a certain period of time, and for a lot of reasons. Uh, but when I did know them, and the stories that I know from my mother, that my my grandfather was this traveling, like roving evangelical preacher. And so they would, I can't remember how many different places my mom lived between the age of her birth and then 18. It was a lot though. Like I want to say more than 18 different places because he would go and do these temporary ministries or year long things and literally like travel around really similarly to what yoga teachers do these days. And what was interesting about watching it from a few different angles, my family's really heavily involved in it. My dad's parents were missionaries. My mother's father's brother was also a traveling minister and traveling preacher, as they would call them. Uh, But because of that, I got to see behind the veil a lot. And growing up, there was a big struggle in my family between this belief system and then the church and how things were presented. And there were things that I was privy to as a pretty young kid that made me very aware of hypocrisy and then very aware of the power that the preacher has. Mm. Growing up in like one of those evangelical churches where they do altar calling and laying of hands and the speaking in tongues and all that, as the minister, you're able to whip up and conjure this energy in the room that is really, really powerful and also can get people to do things that otherwise they wouldn't do mm-hmm. in their in their regular life or that otherwise they would kind of question or, or find a little curious. Now, I'm not criticizing like all of it by any means, but I was really aware because my family knew a lot of these people behind the scenes of what they were like behind the scenes and then what they were doing in front of people. And then the overlap of kind of money and business when it it, it came to that part of it. And all of it was really interesting to watch. And I had a strong aversion to the entire thing my entire life. I hated going uh, to church always. I never fit in. I always felt like I was not in on some secret that Mm -hmm. everybody else was. And um, I watched just these things happen there that I just couldn't wrap my brain around how people could go and do that. I just, I was like, maybe there's something missing inside of, and, you know, over the years that, that diminished and I found my own 
way and my own understanding of spirituality and own understanding of some connection to something higher. But during um, all of that time, I, I never really looked back in, in a certain way at how powerful the teacher and or now it would be the minister is in that kind of group setting, especially they are larger than life. And it's, it's remarkable to watch. There's some self-help people that are, that are in that. They do the same thing mm-hmm. where they can speak to one person and then swirl and conjure up all of this uh, group support and belief and fervor in the room. So it's really interesting to have that background and then to now look at the yoga world and the fact yeah. that I'm traveling around. <laughs> that is such an interesting parallel. So, you know, and it is such a complicated thing to talk about because everybody's different. And like you said, you know, you went into that situation and felt like an outsider. It just didn't work for you. But there were plenty of people for whom it did work, and I'm sure it changed their lives for the positive. And then there were probably people for whom it manipulated them. So it's like there's so many levels. I guess the place for me to start is how has it informed you in the way in your teaching and what you try to do in the room or what you notice people might transfer onto you as a teacher? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I didn't really look at it in the way that I do now until, you know, over the... The last two years, I would say, or maybe a little bit um, longer or shorter than that, depending on which aspect. One of the things that shifted my perspective so much was going to certain things as a participant who is also a teacher, but who I also am someone who carries a lot of injury and a lot of physical kind of ramifications of doing some practices that were way too aggressive for me and following along with things that were not wise biomechanically or not proper for my particular skeletal structure and things like that. And so participating as the injured party and or the modifier or the one who isn't going to do what's offered in a very, very wise and non-confrontational way in the sense that I don't, you know, I'm not adding handstands and flinging around doing crazy crap in the room. I'm just sitting and kneeling oftentimes or modifying things in a way that look different than what everybody else is doing. And there's one particular event in my mind that shifted a huge amount of stuff for me. And in this particular uh, workshop, there was a tremendous amount of people, a teacher, a couple students, and I was a participant and I didn't I never tell teachers that I'm injured. I actually know Jason, I share a, a thought on that. And I'm, I don't ask for injuries. I don't, I don't ever tell people that I'm injured. It's my responsibility and it's the student's responsibility and mine as the teacher to modify things and to give them tons of options and space. But I was totally with the like morning's events of this particular workshop. And I was right on the same page with the, with the teacher that was teaching it great stuff was being said. And then the practice started in the afternoon. And during the practice, I was modifying heavily. And there's a, a huge chunk of people there. This is not a small workshop. And teacher, two, stu- two assistants, within the first 10 minutes in down dog, I got assisted and had to drop to my knees and say, I'm good, actually. Um, and then second time got assisted in a wide leg fold where I had my knees bent, weight way back in my heels and the hands on the floor. And the assistant tried to, you know, pitch me forward, tried to change my pelvic positioning. And 
stood up and explained that I, I didn't, I didn't need to do that, that I had an injury. And then the teacher themselves came over and actually asked me, um, if I had something going on. And it was a moment where I realized that within the first half of class, I had gotten help three times. And I was not somebody who needed helping. I was being incredibly respectful. I wasn't at all doing anything that needed needed correction, needed help, needed any of that. And for me to get help that many times in a room where there was so many people showed me that the only reason I was sticking out is because I wasn't doing what I was told. Mm. I didn't fit in. I didn't belong in the collective in that way. And despite a lot of the workshop content in terms of conversation being about transference and projection and all of this, in the group dynamic, the person not doing sticks out no matter kind of how evolved your teaching is, especially if it's alignment-based and breath-length movement and group movement-based. That becomes very, very difficult for people to kind of let people be as they are. When you've got them moving in concert, Mm -hmm. they're supposed to be together and they're supposed to look similarly or like the picture in some regards. So that taught me a lot about what happens in class. And kind of in taking surveys, I ask a lot of questions when I'm teaching so many. I, and people think it's because I'm like wanting to get the right answer out of them or, you know, I'm trying to like probe them or test them. It has nothing to do with that. I'm literally trying to figure out where they're at and what their experience is and what they know so that I can speak to them on their same page and their level and, and really connect with them. And in starting to ask questions about like, how do you feel in group classes? What has happened? What do you feel in terms of your ability to make wise decisions? Have you gotten hurt? How do you feel about hands-on assist? All these questions, I realized how strongly a teacher impacts a student and how strongly a group dynamic impacts students and how despite their wanting to speak up, oftentimes they can't because of the, the group dynamic that exists. And despite their wanting to do what's wise, they they tend to trust, especially if the teacher is tremendously charismatic. Mm-hmm. And I really started to just see these huge parallels where I was like, oh my goodness, these these people are are not even seeing how how much this is impacting them and they're being manipulated into things, not even knowingly and not even that the teacher oftentimes knows. Totally. But yeah. Yeah. I started to just see how big of a an impact people were having. And from that, I changed like a huge amount of stuff over the last couple of years where like that is a main driving factor in, in how I teach. It's like, I'm just the facilitator. I'm not, my charisma aside, like, don't believe everything I say, investigate. You're the decision maker. I can't tell you what to do. I can't give you the answers. You have to make wise choices based on the information being presented and your own experience with it. So, but it's been a really interesting thing to start to look at on a broad scale, especially. This is interesting. So when you say it that way, it seems like it should be really easy to educate teachers to stand in front of a room and to not feel like they have to have all the answers. And that, so that even if you are a charismatic person, which is wonderful, like charismatic people are amazing, you know, mm-hmm. and we want to be in their presence and there's nothing wrong with that, but that they don't take their, you know, teaching them to not, if you're charismatic, to not necessarily believe all your own bullshit <laughs> and to not, you know, to not kind of get ungrounded in your charisma. But it is very hard to do that. And I mean, like, 
over the you know many years that yoga has existed, there have been many, 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 many teachers who have abused their power. So what parallels do you see between like, I mean, to me, I think the only reason a teacher wouldn't stand in front of the room and say, I don't have the, all the answers, I'm not God, is because they're trying to convey a system, right? They're trying mm-hmm. to convey this is the system. The system has all the answers. You must adhere to the system. You must trust in the system. Therefore, you must trust me. Do you see parallels between that and what you grew up with? Oh, of course. I mean, that's the huge thing is that I talk about it so much lately. And like, this is, this is something that I I think gets overlooked. Most people, in my opinion, come to yoga seeking something, right? They're missing something, whether it's, you know, something physical, that they're looking to change, be it strength, flexibility, weight. I don't care. They're, they're looking for something like that, or they're depressed or anxious and they're looking for some solution to that, or they don't feel like they fit in somewhere, or there's usually something unless they were brought there by their friend or, you Mm -hmm. know, like they were dragged into yoga class. (laughs) Exactly. Which that does happen. But as a whole, I'd say as a community, it's definitely a group of people who are looking for something. I was. I can honestly admit that I was completely looking for something. And when you're seeking, you're kind of ripe for the picking in a certain way in terms of believing things that you're told. Because all you want are the answers that will keep you safe. If everything can be like this, if I follow all the rules, if I do as I'm told, if I believe strongly enough, if I surrender enough to the system, then, then I'll be safe. And, you know, you could run that philosophically down the chain of like, then I'll never die. No bodily death. It's all good. Like, right. It's all of us trying to keep that illusion of, of life forever alive. But I watch people come into this and I've watched myself come into it with that seeking and then really buy into some like pretty ridiculous stuff at a certain point, but it was the way it was done or Mm -hmm. that's how it goes. Or, uh, in this system, that's the way. And when you, when you have people that are seeking and then a system that that's exotic, even if it's spoken in plain language, it's exotic because it's Eastern Mm -hmm. and it's so different than what, you know, in, and I remember thinking how cool I was for a long period of time because, like, I'm doing this alternative thing that's totally. not Christianity. <laughs> and, like, look at me being the badass with all this, all my Christian family, which is pretty funny in retrospect. But, like, but that whole, it's exotic. You don't quite understand it. It's spoken in a language that you don't necessarily understand, even if it's English. Uh, God forbid it's all Sanskrit. And then a seeking position. And... It depends how how much you're willing to buy in. But I remember not long ago realizing that I had bought into yoga as if yoga was, you know, Jesus Christ or or right. Christianity or something of that nature. And I'm I don't look back at it and like yoga, forget it. I don't want to have anything to do with that. It's not like that. It actually gives me such a charge to go forward and be like, you don't have to do that. Don't buy in blindly don't believe everything. But, you know, because I do there are agree. still things about it that work. I mean, that's the thing that's kind totally. of fascinating too. Well, but that's the same with Christianity and with all other like faith systems is that usually what I say when I'm teaching this is there are 
the original tenant and the original principles that are tremendously helpful. I think most systems have a very similar underlying set of principles. Then man gets involved and totally screws it up and makes it about things that it's not and confuses the matter and wraps power and money usually into it. Mm -hmm. And then we get kind of this messy system where a lot of that is veiled. A lot of the value is veiled from people and they have to go through a lot to remember what it was originally about or what it, it was to find what it is about, to be honest. Yeah. I think um, you said something interesting right at the top of that comment, which is, you know, most of us come to yoga because we're seeking something. And I think that you most of us can't understand it at the time, but in retrospect, we see that when you're seeking something, you're especially vulnerable. You are. And you're, you know, you're vulnerable to influence. Like you said, you want the answers. Something, if you're seeking something, it means that the set of inner resources you have or outer resources you have have not worked to date. So you are, you know, you're looking at outwardly. So I guess knowing that, knowing that we know that, how do you teach teachers to, or do you overtly talk to teachers about that when you're training? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do these days because I think it's something that's really important to consider. If it's not talked about, then it gets swept under the rug and or it's not seen until so much later. So it's something I always feel is a necessary conversation at this point. When students come in and they're seeking something and they're in this vulnerable place, they will fill a lot of that with kind of what they're, they're told to do. I remember going to therapy. I've been in therapy like a number of times over the course of my life, but I remember really specifically in my, or really, I think I was probably like 30, going into therapy. And the reason I did it was I had no answers. I had no tools and I was in crisis mode and I literally had nothing in my toolbox in terms of ways to solve that. And I remember just sitting on the couch in that office and being like, I just want you to tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And like, I'll do it. Anything, just make it stop. Like, yeah. I, I don't know how to solve this. And I, I, it's a, that's a very like personal intimate moment between a therapist and a, and a patient. And it's safer because it, I mean, things happen in those settings as well, I'm sure. And, and of course that's an issue, but when it's one-on-one, -on -one, there's, only you and your ability to admit truth and your ability to sit across from one person and say what you need. And I remember my therapist telling me that I can't tell you what to do and I, I can't fix this for you, but I can give you some coping tools and I can teach you how to work with yourself and what you have going on in a lot better way. And so I, I never really had put those things together until all of the injury and my seeing classes from and you know big teacher settings from a different angle and realizing a lot of people are sitting there going I don't have any of the answers I don't know what to do anymore I'm at my wits end like whether it's with food or with relationships or with not fitting in or money or or I don't even know like anything they're kind of underneath a lot of that at their wits end with certain components and although you could say, well, they're just wanting to lose like five pounds, whatever. I'm like, no, no, that's a really big deal. Because if you're coming with that, you'll buy. I mean, why do you think there's so many freaking diet books all the time that sell bonanza worth of dollars? Because 
people will believe almost anything. They'll drink like, you know, lemon and maple syrup for months at a time just to try to fill that. Solve their problem. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's worth explaining to teachers because if you know that and they can reflect in themselves uh, how that felt without having to break them, which is something I'm really big on not doing is like the sharing circles where people admit things. I am not for that in teacher training. Like, nope, we're not doing that. You get to have an internal thing and you can share what you feel comfortable with, but we're not doing this like whole group dynamic share session. That's like having group therapy and it's not what this is for, but I think it's worth having them internally reflect on a time when they were looking for something and how they would have taken almost any advice in the world in order to just make that stop or just fix it or just make themselves feel whole or lovable or whatever it may be. I talk about it a good amount because I think people at their core want to do good stuff as teachers. And without talking about it, I think they make really big mistakes. And I hate having to see teachers look back like I had to and go, oh, crap. Yeah. 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 I contributed. Whoops. Sorry about that. Yeah, I, I I think it's not talked about enough. And I think, you know, bringing up therapy and psychology is interesting because, you know, I still haven't quite sorted this out in my own mind. I also did a lot of therapy in my 20s, really mostly in my 20s. And it was in my late 20s that I found yoga. And so, and there were a lot of things that were still very unresolved for me. And I felt like it was the combination of therapy and yoga that kind of got me to feeling, you know, more clarity about my life and myself Mm -hmm. and all those things. But I do think that, you know, talk therapy doesn't work for everyone. And so, you know, there are some parallels that people come to yoga expecting it to, you know, help them or, or it starts to work for them perhaps. And then it's like, oh, I'm feeling this transformation. Therefore this system is working. Mm -hmm. So I often wonder, you know, how much just like the basics of therapy and the frame that's set up between a therapist and a patient should just be taught in teacher trainings. Like this is transference. This is counter-transference. Like not only will your, your student project, you know, some of their unresolved issues with, you know, maybe not being seen or not being loved the way they wanted to be loved by their parents or not being encouraged by a teacher not only will they project that onto you, but you might, in your frustration of teaching in a moment, project something onto them. And you might find yourself reacting like in, in a moment with a student. And how do you handle that? Like, what do you do afterward if you notice yourself kind of out of control emotionally or in your teaching life? So I wonder, you know, if those things should be taught more overtly and, and how we do that, like how... I mean, and that I agree. I, I think that the hard thing is, you know, I have a similar experience. I, I was practicing yoga before I, I mean, I'd done therapy like earlier on for like anxiety and some other stuff, but I didn't really start into like the real depths of things until I was like 30, which was right around teacher training ish time for me. So I'd practiced before, but I hadn't really gotten to that level of, of deeper understanding where kind of everything was linking together, where I understood philosophically what was supposed to be happening physically. And even then, even with like understanding that at the level that I did, I still made big mistakes, but it was kind of that same period of time where 
the therapy combined with the yoga and my understanding of the two as they worked together was vital. And it gave me a better understanding of myself as a teacher that I don't know that I would have had if I hadn't have worked through that because, you know, being a teacher is a place that is incredibly confrontational and it's the power dynamic is very strong and it can be intoxicating. I can see how like people get into this thing of like really thinking they know stuff or really thinking they can fix somebody or help them in that way. But then I'm one to always gripe about certain parts of the system, but then, you know, we have pretty much a, an industry that's unregulated. And right. so it's like, you know, how do you teach a group of people who are not licensed in any way therapy techniques right. that are going to be That was applied. kind of my next part of the question. Yeah, in uh, exactly. Like we have no code of ethics. We take None. no oath. I'm saying we, I'm not a teacher, but... <laughs> Well, yeah, but you've been through training, so you do know, and you've worked in this industry, you, 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 you know, so. Yeah, I, I've come back to wondering about that lately. You know, when I first started at Yoga Journal, so it was like more than a decade ago, Judith Lassiter was really beating the drum about that, and it was a really strong mission of hers to incorporate a code of ethics, and it just didn't happen. It just didn't fly, and she's like a strong, smart person. If anyone, right. I think, could navigate the system and rally people, it would be her, and and I was so young that, and so new to yoga that I didn't really fully understand the implications. I sort of thought she was being a little overboard. But now, standing where I stand right now and seeing all the things that happen, I do wonder. I do wonder about that. That's not to say that a code of ethics would, we wouldn't avoid all teacher abuses, just like no. I'm sure there are therapists that abuse their clients. But it would give people a framework and it would give people a moment of pause, right? If like, let's say a student, I mean, this is sort of like the most common transgression that people think about when they think about student-teacher relationship. Like, let's say a student starts to idealize a teacher and a student thinks that the teacher has everything figured out and the student has really, really been wanting to love someone and feel loved and they feel loved by the teacher and all of a sudden they've got a crush. Yeah. And I'm sure as a teacher, it can be really hard sometimes. It's so interesting that you use the word intoxicating. I've never thought about it that way. And if the teacher is caught up and like some of their issues are not resolved, it could be returned. But if they had a code of ethics where they took an oath and they thought through these things and these things were talked about, it might at least give them pause before acting <laughs> on a situation like that. You know? Agreed. I mean, I think that, you know, that that is a part of this whole thing that I look at a lot because I do think that there would be a code of ethics that could work, but it would be like, okay, where do you draw certain lines and how do you draw certain lines with things? Because you'd have to really figure out like, what are you going to say is all right? And what are you going to say isn't? Now, I think that if teachers were taught a lot more of the psychological ramifications of being the teacher, not just of like the students, but what it's, what it means to stand up there and to do what you're doing and to offer what you're offering in that context, I think that that would be a way to kind of get people to take pause in a lot of ways that they haven't. You know, if you were to explain to people that just putting your hands on somebody oftentimes is a place where they don't feel permission internally to tell you no, or they, they don't even know that they mean no when they say yes, they're not even in tune with that. And, 
getting people to understand that the student is going to project upon you so much of what they are feeling like they lack and that they're looking at you for all these answers. And I think explaining that to teachers can really make them a lot more responsible. Now it's not going to solve everything and you could have a code of ethics. And like, that's one of the things that, you know, it's really hard because I like to speak pretty loudly about this stuff too, but to rally people around it is really difficult. Really difficult. They don't want to give up their thing. They don't want to have restraint put on them. And, you know, that to me is always a little concerning. And then there's the other part where, where students idealize teachers, which I found really interesting because that was the part of the, of the Christianity thing and the minister and pastor versus the yoga teacher. That's really different. And people think that it means that you're a deity and that you're somehow like pure, like Mother Teresa or something like that. And it literally, none of it talks about that. None of the philosophical components that are about that. There, there's a code of ethics in them that gets you to be far more honest, and but really in like a stop manipulating stuff kind of way. Not yeah. a, not a like you know don't tell a fib to somebody kind of way. It's much deeper than that. But I think that students, you know, have this image or that we perpetuate it perhaps even in social media and in advertising and in what's written out there that teachers are somehow like floating around on clouds and not swearing like truck drivers or like giving someone the finger when they're pissed in the car, like, totally. you know, doing things that are on, that are, would be seen as like, you know, unyogic, which yeah. always cracks me up, but I think it's, I think those things need to be talked about is like, we're just people and we're just facilitators and teachers of the topic. We're not deities, but we also, I think, should have the responsibility of always understanding that our students are vulnerable to us, even if we don't think so, that they're going to take what we say really personally and in a way that makes it really important, even if you don't mean it like that. so interesting. I, I actually think in certain ways, social media has helped break down the wall between the sort of teacher as deity. I mean, it could go in either direction, but I will tell you that, you know, being at yoga journal and talking to teachers all the time, like I got to see things behind the curtain that I couldn't believe. You know, I remember, I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast before or not, but I can remember interviewing a really well-known teacher just for like a back page interview. And I said, sort of, like, what's your biggest indulgence? And he said, well, a burger and a margarita, but you cannot print that. And I thought, why? You know, (laughs) and he just didn't have the, you know, he just wanted to project sort of this holy image of what he perceived to be like this untouchable yogic image. And I mean, there are just countless situations like that. Yeah. And I think that what if we could somehow help people to understand that when a teacher gets up to teach, if they're very talented and it's just very natural to them, 
I mean, I even like, I even see this with my husband, you know, you're in your best self place. Like you are in, you are incredibly wise and you are, and there's some people have the ability to transmit really well. Like they, you know, Sally Kempton talks about this a lot with her teacher who was very flawed, Swami Muktananda. I mean, just that's an understatement, right? But he was a great teacher. He had the ability to transmit. And some people see that and they feel like that equates to my teacher is perfect every moment of every single day forever and ever. Amen. And maybe there are those rare people who do carry that through in their life. But, But for the most part, that's not the case. You can still be a wonderful, talented, like phenomenal teacher and have a really screwed up life. And because you're just a human being and and you're an aspirant too. You're just trying to figure everything else out too. Exactly. I think that there's like, there's something so great in, in what you said there. And I think to me, I estimate it usually as like congruence where there's very little about like my life, except for just, I don't broadcast what I'm doing day to day or, you know, my like personal conversations or if there's, you know, chunks of my life that I, I certainly don't talk about on social media just because it's not the proper venue for that. But I'm very transparent and I'm always aware that I want to be congruent with who I am in front of people and who I am behind the scenes. I drink wine. I am somebody who eats meat because I'm allergic to like literally everything that a vegetarian or vegan would eat, like nuts, soy, meat, you name it. Oh I can't yeah. eat it. Yeah. So I have no problem admitting to a huge chunk of this because I understand the nature of the philosophy and of Ahimsa as, a, as something that you have to personally inspect and personally work with and that it can't be somebody else's set of values that you're applying. And so I think there's a lot that needs to be said about congruency and not hiding things. And, and I think you can do that without being over-sharer-like person that will talk to you on the airplane for a million hours as a stranger about like way too personal details for you to know. But I think there's a way to do that with tact and skill. And students do come and they do think that I could really whip the room up if I wanted to. And like, I, I can do it at times. And I have to be very mindful of the fact that I know some stuff just because I've worked really hard and I have a funny personality, which jokes can be very disarming. And so I've got to be really careful to also temper that with some humanity and some ability to say, I don't know, and I'm sorry, and and to show my humanity. Otherwise, it, it is very often the case that students do think like, oh my God, they've got it all figured out and behind the scenes, they're like, I mean, it's the same thing that I'm sure in certain ways happens to anybody that's seen in the public setting like that, like an actor, a musician or whatever it may be. But it's just a skill that you're, you're kind of gifted with or not. And it's the ability to speak in front of people and articulate and explain and re-explain and break down and show people from different learning styles and different walks of life, the material that you know. And I wish students knew that, that really you're just a facilitator of information. Like being a teacher is just telling people what you know about a topic and getting them to understand it as best they can. But then there's an integration process that they have to do on their own, which means they kind of have to give you up in certain ways for, you know, at a certain point, be that in a pose or in a, during, after a period of years or whatever it may be and become their own guide in a lot of ways. That brings up two things for me. One is that just from my own personal experience, this is just my, my very, very personal opinion. 
I think the biggest dogma I grew up with was ballet. Mm-hmm. I d- danced from the time I was really, really young and was it sort of peaked when I was about 10, 11, 12. I was like in this dance company. So that's a really, really vulnerable, formative time. And it was just like all in. If I was going to make it to New York by the time I was 15, like that was the time, right? right. And I didn't, I didn't really have what it took to make it to New York at 15, obviously. So it was, it was definitely filled with heartbreak, but I did everything I could exactly the way that I was told to do it. And then I sort of saw the shadow side because it didn't, it didn't work. So when I came to yoga as vulnerable as I was, and as much of a seeker as I was, if I got too much into a system, I kind of recoiled, you know, because I started in Ashtanga and got really injured. And I was like, mm, yeah, this isn't working. I got to find something else. And I studied some Iyengar and I was like, oh, too rigid for me. Got to got to try something else. And, you know, I just pieced it all together with many different teachers. Hmm. And so that's something that I say to people is it's okay to have more than one teacher. It's a good idea to commit to a teaching or a teacher for a period of time and to not just like dabble, 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 dabble. But it's okay to decide that, you know, a new teacher appeared and is offering you something that you need at this point. And maybe you'll kind of go in that direction and to piece it. It's okay to piece it together for yourself. I completely agree. It's funny. Um, we share a lot of similarities and like, I would say one I had that kind of, I don't fit in. I don't buy into this thing as a kid in that uh, religious system. And then I was a gymnast who really wanted to go to the Olympics, but I, at a certain point quit and got too tall and Mm -hmm. then went back and it just wasn't going to happen. And then I platformed and dove springboard and like, they really wanted me to go to the Olympics and that, but I, I, it was too scary for me and I didn't, I wasn't really that into it. So I, I have this kind of similarity in that it didn't work out and I didn't totally buy into any one of those so that it became like my sole identity. And then when I came to yoga, it was kind of that same thing where I did a whole bunch of different stuff before I I started with Ashtanga. And then I only bought into that system for comparatively a really short period of time. I think it was like three years or something. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, you know what? This is not working. And then I bought into the vinyasa system for a while. And I was like, this isn't working. And then I did meditation. And like I've jumped all over the place. I was very consistent with the teacher who taught me to teach. The teacher who taught me to teach was really different than the teachers who taught me to practice. Mm. There was reasons for it. One, he didn't teach publicly, so it made it a little difficult to practice with him. He'd, he'd given up his public teaching schedule. But I also had interests in many different things over the years. And so there wasn't one teacher I could kind of stay with for long, although long is relative. I mean, I'm talking years here still. And then I would move on to something else. So I think there is something to be said with I always, there's a funny thing that I think goes on in the yoga world. It's kind of like a digression in a way, but it will come back around. I always think that if you can't understand what your teacher is completely saying by a number of years in, there's a problem. Like if you want to go and hang out with somebody consistently after a certain point and see the tiny little shifts that they're making and what they're doing and their perspective and everything, that's one thing. But if you keep going because you don't understand the like cues they're using or you don't understand how it is they do what they do or what the philosophy of the entire thing is, 
or you can't go to another teacher that's totally different and see the commonalities because you're confused about what the tenets of what you're being taught are in the first place. That's something to reflect upon because that that gets into like the guru and or the you know supreme leader where if they're not giving you all the answers, either you just don't resonate with them and maybe you should find somebody else to begin with or there's a, a, a subconscious holding back of certain pieces of information where it's like, I'm not going to tell you all of this so that you keep coming. And to me, if the, if that's happening after a certain amount of years, you know, then it's like reflect upon that. If you're going to hang out, I tell people that all the time. If you're coming to hang out because you have seen me do this a whole bunch of times before and you know most of what I'm going to say, but you like being in the environment. And surrounded by people that are like-minded and it re-inspires you, reinvigorates you, or, you know, you pick out the few little things that are new or that you missed, great. But if you don't understand what I'm talking about at a certain stage, then we either aren't speaking the same language or, or like something's going up on here. So I'm really big on like giving people all my whys, mm. everything. I'll tell you why I'm doing everything I'm doing. And uh, I think that eliminates some of that, but... It eliminates some of the mystique which which potentially pe- teachers hang on to if they're trying to make a sale, right? If you're trying exactly. to keep people re-upping and re-upping and re-upping, how do you do that? You like, I mean, it's like the classic, it's a classic journalism technique of like the secret mm-hmm. to a blah, blah, blah headline. I know. It's hard though, because, you know, that's, that's something that I weigh out constantly right now as a teacher is like, all right, I don't want you guys to think I'm mystical in some way or that, you need to keep coming because there's some secret you haven't quite heard yet. I want you to come and learn and keep learning and continue to work with. But I, it's something at a certain point that you should understand. And But it is, you know, I, I mean, Zach and I talk about that all the time as he's sneaking by right now. Mm-hmm. But um, he and I speak about how it's scary when you start as the teacher admitting a lot of truths. And I can see why certain people hide things or certain teachers hide things behind the scenes, because if that's what's keeping your students coming back, then you're risking like not filling up the next thing and all of that kind of stuff, which is, you know, I I posted a post yesterday um, about injury and about, you know, posting about it and responsibility that comes with that. And one of the reasons I am constantly like nailing that point is because to me, I want people to know that I'm going to tell them as much of the truth as I possibly can at any given moment with everything that I know about and that I'm not going to hide anything and not shirk my responsibility or keep things from them. I want them to know as best I can that I'm as transparent as possible. Which means, you know, that's going to turn certain people off because, you know, they're going to look and be like, she's not teaching that handstand anymore. Or she's going to tell us that, you know, doing 97,000 chaturangas in a group class in the sweaty heat is not a good idea. And that's scary to some people to like have that taken away. So I get that it could limit the audience, but I also feel such a responsibility to like speak what I know Mm -hmm. so that at least the very least I can say like, I, I didn't hide anything from you. I told you what I what I knew. And so I think that that comes from like watching people hide things in my youth and not say certain things. And it's a different set of items entirely. Well, some of it crosses over, I guess. But I'm very like sensitive to the hypocrite persona, I suppose, or or the hiding yeah. and the like shadow or the Wizard of Oz type idea. So 
I really try, even if it's detrimental to do that, which I know is like not for everybody. And I also know that it's going to turn some students off, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's important to note that, that it does take a certain amount of clarity and quite frankly, courage to be yourself in this role, because I think charisma is huge these days. Like you said, it's not just in the yoga world. It's like in the self-help world and even in sort of the TV preacher world and all of that. It's just human nature. And I, I think part of it is wanting the answers. And I think part of it too is wanting to be entertained humans just want thing, everything to be fun and they want it to, oh, yeah. they want to be entertained, you know? And they it's do. like, if you know that about yourself, then let yourself go to a few classes a week where you're entertained and then have part of your practice, you know, be more about solitude and introspection and figuring things out. At least that, that is my opinion, of course. But. I mean, that's my opinion as well. I know that's easier said than done. And you know, it depends on what stage you're at in the practice. But, you know, one of the things that I say and that I so strongly agree with you in is that this isn't about being entertained. And I, as a teacher, and, and I would say to any teacher, it's not your job to entertain them. Your job is to teach them, which means if part of your teaching style is to be engaging in a charismatic way, you have to make sure you temper that with a lot of like, listen, hear the information beyond all this. I want you to investigate, you know, give them some solid understanding of how they need to look through that, that charisma. But I wish teachers felt more confident in knowing their job is not to entertain the students and that their job also kind of tangentially here as the teacher, it's easy to watch a room of students fidget or watch a room of students make like bitchy resting face or, uh, anything like that and project there's where the projection comes back in project onto them that you're not entertaining them enough or not giving them what they want or not, they don't like you or they're going to complain or they're not going to come back or any of those sorts of ideas. And then to change, and it can happen in an instant, your teaching style to try to please them rather than to actually teach them, which sometimes means if they're all fidgety like that, it's not because you're not doing your job. It's because they're fidgety and they need to learn to hold still and you're going to have to teach them. Yeah. But it's really confrontational as the teacher. So it's like, oh, they're fidgety. I'm just going to move them then. And I'm like, right. you're just going to like, Ayurveda, come on. That's like gas on fire. Like you're going to have to get them to slowly chill out and to learn to sit with discomfort and to, to be all right with just like it being not that exciting to lay on your back and do nothing for a few minutes, but watch your breath. But I think that that's confrontational for the teacher. And then there's the studios and all that on top of it, money and you name it. I think that that whole thing about entertaining people and about feeling like you need to entertain them is a topic worth looking at with this. So one last question, you know, just thinking of the teachers out there, what is your response both externally and internally when um, you have a student who you, whether it's in one instance or whether it's kind of, you notice it over a period of time when you see a student kind of deifying you in that way or projecting their hopes and aspirations for themselves onto you? Um, When I see it internally, first of all, it it rarely happens um, as far as I can tell these days, mostly because I am the like truck driver swearing in person, not in public class, but like in workshop setting and teacher training and stuff. I speak like I do when I'm not in the classroom. 
and I know it's a technique as well, but it kind of takes a little bit of the, you know, air off of it. And, and then the, the kind of blunt way that I'll speak about everything that I see and know, it, it takes some of that off. But internally, when I see that, it's actually like a feeling more than a, a knowing intellectually. It's just a feeling where I'm like, this could go in one of two directions where this person is idealizing something and thinks that I have all the answers and doesn't trust themselves and is kind of missing it. It hasn't happened like that often, uh, to be honest, but it's more an internal feeling. And it's at that moment where I'm pretty like blunt about the fact that I, I don't know everything and you've to trust yourself. And if you're that attached to who I am and what I'm doing, then, then, you know, it's something to look at because I'm just a person who's telling you information and I'm doing it the best I can, but you can't be me. You know, that's, I, I say that a lot. I'm like, you can position yourself as close as you want to me. You can sit right next to me all day long and like press your face next to mine. And it will never be enough to make you me. It, I'm me and you're you and you're awesome the way you are and what you have to offer will be what you have to offer. Uh, it'll be different than what I have to offer. It'll be spoken in a different way. It, you'll have different students, but that's great. That's perfect. You know, I was never trying to be anyone but me and I try to encourage them towards just, you know, that whole, like, it's so trite nowadays, but just do you. Like, seriously, what your personality is like, what you know at any given level, what, what you think, what you have experienced, speak it with honesty and just let it, let it ride. Otherwise, if you're trying to do a, a, an impression of someone else, you'll fail every time. Impressions of other people are hollow. And so I try to encourage them to see that, like, if you're going to try to be me, it'll be a hollow, like hologramic version of who I am. So don't do that. Be you. And then, you know, I try to take everything off in terms of teaching people cues or my sequences or like anything like that these days so that I'm really teaching them the why in, behind what I say or the why behind what I would put together in a class so that they understand that it's not me that is the important part. It's that they know what they're doing and then they can put it together in their own way. They don't have to mimic in any way they can just know and then be themselves when they're talking about it. Uh, but I think it's important to kind of deal with when it does come up, uh, if and when, because it can get pretty well from all the things that get reported out there, pretty, pretty, uh, dicey, pretty quick, I would suppose. Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of nailed it when, you know, by talking about it in this way, because I think the biggest gift you can give people is to help them figure themselves out. And so I think that response really, I'm sure, you know, you're still providing them with the tools to do that, but it's sort of their path to figure it out. Yeah. That's, that's something that I guess to wrap it all the way back around to like the original conversation topic, it's not our job to fix people. It's not our job to expose them. It's not our job to like lean into their weaknesses or their strengths or to get them to buy into our way of doing things or to become us or to trust a system implicitly without questioning. That's not our job. And it's our job to, to give them the information and to facilitate a, an environment where they can use those tools, just like a therapist would in a very hands-off way. Like, here are the tools, but what you do with them, 
that's up to you. I'm just showing you that I'm not even really giving you the complete owner's manual readout. I'm only giving you like, this is how it works. These are the basic principles, but you've got to figure out how to employ those tools in your life and how to work with them with wisdom and not every tool is for everybody. So you kind of have to figure it out as you go. I think if that's always in mind that it's not so dogmatic and it's really just an offering of teachings, then you can kind of steer away from a lot of that guru and or supreme leader, yeah, <laughs> inspirational speaker type stuff that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. It might've worked um, in past cultures, you know, and yeah, I mean, just, just general cultures, but it doesn't seem to be a suitable one for our culture these days. I would agree. Thank you, Alex. You're welcome. And thank thank you you for being patient with my, I don't know if those of you who are listening can hear, but we've had a little helper here with this morning, this with us this morning, Miss Sophia Rose is home from school. Mom life. We did the interview anyway. I'm totally proud of us. We powered through. I love it. I thought it was great. I love watching her wander in in the background. She she would like wander in with crowns. She came with like a rainbow mask. She came with an earring. So she's definitely um, got the uh, performer gene, I think. Yeah, I was just going to say, she's trying to win you over. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Well, it's always awesome. Yeah. It's always awesome to talk to you. I know. So. Likewise. So I just yeah. feel so, so lucky that you, uh, that you want to come talk and I really appreciate hey, it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Got to have somewhere to talk it out with yeah. like-minded people. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right, hun. We'll, we'll right. talk again soon. Sounds good. Okay, guys, I'm so happy to be back with you this week after a little break last week. For show notes, you can go to the usual place, yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 40. And I will send links to all the places that Alex will be teaching coming up. And I just have a bunch of really, really great shows lined up for you. I'm so excited. I have a show with Matias Rati coming, a show with Deborah Berkman about how you don't have to be famous to be a career yoga teacher. And I so appreciate all of your support on social media and all of your reviews. They mean so much and they keep me going. So please, if you enjoy the podcast, share it or let me know or leave a review on iTunes. And you can follow me on Instagram. That's where I seem to be posting the most these days at Andrea Ferretti. You could also follow Jason at Jason underscore Crandall. Have a great week and we'll see you soon. Enjoy your practice.